Decision Podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org law. People v. Trammell Quences, decided November 21, 2023. Wilson, Chief Judge, well before daybreak, four armed officers knocked repeatedly on the exterior door and window of a two-family residence. Someone responded by coming to the exterior door and opening it. The officers identified themselves as police, the person moved aside, and the officers entered the vestibule. Through the doorway of the downstairs apartment, they saw the person they wished to arrest, entered that apartment, and arrested him. The question before us is whether the suppression court should have granted Mr. Quences's motion to suppress for lack of consent for police to enter the apartment. We hold that it was error to deny the motion and now reverse. 1. Testimony adduced at the suppression hearing and trial established the following. On November 14, 2012, co-defendants Trammell Quences and Irving Gavin abducted Thomas Dudley at gunpoint from his Brooklyn apartment, in the presence of Mr. Dudley's sisters, Monique and Brianna, and his cousin, Travis. They bound Mr. Dudley's hands with zip ties. He was found dead in a Queen's Park the next morning, with his throat and wrists cut. Some zip ties were next to his body. On November 17, Monique and Travis reported Mr. Dudley's abduction to Queen's detectives, showing a detective photos of the two abductors, stored on Monique's phone. A detective emailed the photos to detectives in the Brooklyn precinct, officers there recognized the man as Mr. Quences and Mr. Gavin. From a photo array. Monique and Travis subsequently identified them as the perpetrators. Detectives then issued perp-positive I-cards for the two men. However, the police did not apply for a warrant to arrest Mr. Quences or Mr. Gavin. Instead, at 5.30 a.m. on November 19, a warrant team arrived at the residence where the police believed they could be found, a two-story, two-family house. The team was composed of four armed detectives, led by Detective Fogelman. The detectives approached the front door of the building and knocked several times without response. An officer then knocked on a first-floor window. A man whom officers did not recognize looked out of the window and then, after some time, the same man, Kwamil Jeter, came to the front exterior door and opened it. Detective Fogelman testified that when Mr. Jeter opened the door, he asked, How you doing, sir? Mind if we come in and talk to you? In response, Mr. Jeter opened the door wider which Detective Fogelman took to mean that Mr. Jeter was consenting to the detectives coming in. None of the detectives asked Mr. Jeter who he was, what his name was, whether he lived in the building or what he was doing there. Mr. Jeter never made any verbal response to Detective Fogelman's request to enter to speak with him. The front door of the house opened to a small vestibule with two interior doors, each visibly bearing a lock one leading into a first-floor apartment and the other leading to a set of stairs leading up to a separate apartment. Both doors were open. Although officers did not know whether Mr. Quences and Mr. Gavin lived on the first or second floor, Detective Fogelman saw Mr. Quences through the open door between the vestibule and the first-floor apartment. The detectives left the vestibule, entered into the first-floor apartment and then arrested Mr. Quences in the living room and Mr. Gavin in a bedroom, which was towards the rear of the apartment. Officers transported Mr. Quences and Mr. Gavin to a Queen's precinct and placed them in separate interrogation rooms. At some point, Another officer recovered Quences's cell phone from him. At approximately 11.15 a.m., a detective entered the room and gave Mr. Quences his Miranda warnings. Mr. Quences said that he waived his rights would speak to the detective. After several hours of questioning, Mr. Quences confessed that he and Mr. Gavin had abducted Mr. Dudley. 
he said that he needed money and that Mr. Cruz, a drug dealer, offered to pay him for abducting Mr. Dudley, who was also a drug dealer. Mr. Cruz told Mr. Quences that he wanted to abduct Mr. Dudley so that Mr. Dudley's partner, Ali, would release Mr. Cruz's boss, Rob, whom Ali had abducted previously. Mr. Cruz assured Mr. Dudley and Mr. Gavin that their only role would be abducting Mr. Dudley, and that Mr. Dudley would not be hurt. Mr. Quences further told the police that he and Mr. Gavin led Mr. Dudley from his apartment to a waiting van. They remained with Mr. Dudley in the back as the van drove away but exited it a few minutes later. At the time they left, Mr. Dudley was alive. The next day, while executing a search warrant on the apartment, police found the title for a Jaguar in the name of Victor Cruz in a safe located in one of the apartment's bedrooms. On a windowsill, police also found the keys to the car itself, which was parked across the street from the apartment. Mr. Quences and Mr. Gavin were indicted on several charges including kidnapping, robbery, and felony murder. The people theorized that Mr. Cruz had given Mr. Gavin the Jaguar's compensation for participation in the abduction. The extravagance of the gift was evidence that Mr. Gavin and Mr. Quences knew that Mr. Dudley would be killed. Contending that the warrantless, non-consensual entry into his home was unlawful, Mr. Quences moved to suppress the Jaguar title in Cruz's name and the cell phone which contained pictures of Mr. Quence's posing with the Jaguar. Following a patent hearing, although the suppression court rejected the people's argument that Mr. Quence's did not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the first-floor apartment, which it determined was Mr. Gavin's residence, it nonetheless denied Mr. Quence's motion. The court based its decision on Detective Fogelman's testimony as to the circumstances under which the detectives gained permission to enter the vestibule and also on Mr. Jeter's testimony that his mother owned the entire building that he had a key to the first-floor apartment, and that he could come and go as he pleased, information unknown to the detectives at the time they arrested Mr. Quences. After a jury trial, Mr. Quences was convicted of two counts of murder in the second degree, penal law. Section 125.253, and one count of robbery in the second degree, penal law section 160.102, b. Mr. Quences was sentenced as a second felony offender to two concurrent prison terms of 25 years to life for the murder convictions and 15 years, with five years of post-release supervision, for the robbery conviction. The appellate division affirmed his conviction and upheld the denial of his suppression motion. The court determined that the detectives had gone to Mr. Quences's home for the specific purpose of arresting him and that Mr. Quences specifically raised the question of whether a warrantless home arrest conducted to delay the attachment of counsel violated the New York Constitution, but declined to find that the intent of the police to conduct a warrantless arrest of Mr. Quences in his home created a new category of patent violations because it saw no viable path to resolving the question in the Mr. Quences's favor within the current framework of New York law. A justice of the appellate division granted leave to appeal. We now reverse. The warrantless entry into Mr. Quences's home was not based on consent under the New York and United States constitutions. 2. Mr. Quences challenges the suppression court's determination that Mr. Jeter had apparent authority to consent to the police entry of the downstairs apartment based on Detective Fogelman's testimony that there may have been two apartments inside the building and he did not know who Mr. Jeter was, and because Mr. Jeter only consented to police entry into the vestibule not the apartment. The prosecution responds that Mr. Jeter had apparent authority because he looked out the window of the first-floor apartment and opened the door to the building early in the morning, and because his testimony before the suppression court established that he had actual authority over the apartment. Under Article 1, Section 12 of the New York Constitution and the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution that searches and seizures inside a home without a warrant are presumptively unreasonable, People v. Knapp, Payton v. New York, explaining that with respect to the home, 
The Fourth Amendment draws a firm line at the entrance to the house. Absent one of two narrow circumstances, exigent circumstances or voluntary consent, the police may not enter a private dwelling to arrest its occupant without an arrest warrant, People v. Levon, Payton. Whether an individual voluntarily consented to a home search is a question of fact, but the minimum factual showing necessary to constitute consent is a question of law, People v. McRae. Here, the testimony before the suppression court does not establish that the police had consent to enter Mr. Quences's home. As a threshold matter, we clarify that the suppression court erred when it relied on facts not known to the police at the time they entered, such as Mr. Jeter's statement that he had keys to the apartment, that his mother owned the building, and that he was free to come and go into the downstairs apartment. Those facts are irrelevant to the issue of apparent authority, which turns solely on what the detectives knew or should have known at the time they entered, see People v. Adams, whether an officer reasonably believed that an individual has apparent authority to consent to a warrantless home search is based upon an objective view of the circumstances present at the time of the search. After all, guests sometimes answer a knock at their host's doors. The United States Supreme Court first outlined third-party consent as an exception to the warrant requirement in Coolidge v. New Hampshire. Schneckloth v. Bustamante, and United States v. Matlock. Together, those cases stand for the proposition that when the prosecution seeks to justify a warrantless search by proof of voluntary consent, it may show that permission to search was obtained from a third party who possessed common authority over or other sufficient relationship to the premises or effects sought to be inspected, Matlock. Common authority cannot be implied by the mere interest the third party has in the property, Chapman v. United States. Landlord could not validly consent to the search of a house he had rented to another, Stoner v. California, night hotel clerk could not validly consent to search of customer's room. In Adams, we held that under the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution, if the searching officers rely in good faith on the apparent capability of an individual to consent to a search and the circumstances reasonably indicate that that individual does, in fact, have the authority to consent, evidence obtained as the result of such a search should not be suppressed. The standard set out in Adams is an objective one, whether a reasonable person could conclude that consent was given by someone with authority to do so. Subsequent United States Supreme Court law has analyzed the Fourth Amendment similarly, see Illinois v. Rodriguez. Here, the circumstances do not reasonably indicate that Mr. Jeter had apparent authority to consent to the detective's entry into Mr. Quences's apartment. The people contend that because the detectives knocked on the exterior door and window for several minutes, then saw a man peering out of the window near the front exterior door and the first floor apartment door was open, it was reasonable, in view of the early hour, to conclude that the man opening the door had come from the first floor apartment and no further inquiry was necessary. The fundamental problem with the people's argument is that the officers never sought consent to enter Mr. Quences's apartment only to enter the common vestibule to speak the person who answered the exterior door. The record shows that there were separate doors inside the vestibule, one for each of the two apartments in the building each bearing a lock, and that each drawer was open. When the people asked Detective Fogelman to describe how he perceived the building upon his arrival at 5.30 a.m., he testified that it may have had two apartments, an upstairs and a downstairs. Detective Fogelman asked for consent to enter through the exterior door into the vestibule, not into either of the two apartments, and it is not disputed that Mr. Quences's apartment had a door separating it from the vestibule. Even if the detective's question could be interpreted as a request to search both, or either, of the apartments, the circumstances would not support a view that Mr. Jeter appeared to have the authority to consent. The people's reliance on Adams and Rodriguez is misplaced, as those cases show that a reasonable belief of apparent authority requires some claim of authority by the person granting consent.
In both cases, the third party verbally communicated information to law enforcement that would lead a reasonable person to believe the third party had authority. In Adams, the person giving consent told the police about the weapons in the apartment, escorted the police to the apartment, and gave them access by opening the door with a key she was carrying. Likewise, in Rodriguez, the person granting consent several times referred to the apartment as our apartment and unlocked the door with her key so that the officers could enter and arrest, the defendant, People v. John, is also an apposite. There, a resident of a multi-family brownstone directed officers to the common basement of the building where she had seen the defendant enter with a gun, a basement that did not have any areas designated for particular tenants. John cited our decision in People v. Leach a case in which we held that the defendant had no reasonable expectation of privacy in a bedroom that was not his, but was used by his grandmother to house visitors, cf. People v. Wood, homeowner could lawfully consent to search of a boarder's bedroom in her house only because that room was not set aside for the boarder's exclusive possession and use when the boarder shared it with the homeowner's 10-year-old son, over whom she had dominion. Here, the suppression court found that Mr. Quences had an expectation of privacy in the apartment. Thus, the very case law relied on the by the people shows that the minimum threshold for apparent authority under the New York and United States constitutions requires some communication or conduct by the person giving consent to support a claim of authority. It would be a radical departure to say that so long as an unidentified person within a multifamily apartment building opens the building's exterior door at the request of the police, that person will be deemed to have had apparent authority to authorize a police search of the entire premises. Here, all Detective Fogelman knew was that Mr. Jeter answered the repeated knocking by the police at 5.30 a.m. by looking through a window and then opening the front door, Mr. Jeter was neither of the suspects, Mr. Jeter was not someone known to the detectives, and that the vestibule had two doors within it, one of which was at the base of a staircase and both of which bore exterior-type locks. The fact Mr. Jeter answered the door at 5.30 a.m. and the first-floor apartment door was open, when dead. Fogelman could see there was a second door cannot form the basis of a reasonable belief that Mr. Jeter appeared to have authority to authorize the police to enter the apartment. Even if the detectives knew that Mr. Jeter had been in the first-floor apartment shortly before answering the door, something more would be required to establish a reasonable belief of apparent authority, such as Mr. Jeter identifying himself the building's landlord, displaying keys to the first-floor apartment, or unlocking and entering the apartment. In contrast to the circumstances in which third parties have been determined to have sufficient apparent authority to consent to the search of a home, the people admit that Mr. Jeter did not say a single word to the detectives and the detectives did not ask any question of Mr. Jeter other than whether they could enter the vestibule to speak with him. The belief that Mr. Jeter came from the first-floor apartment of a multifamily building to answer the door is insufficient to establish his apparent authority absent some affirmative statement claiming authority or concrete demonstration of authority. See for example people v. Petrie, nor may the police proceed without making some inquiry into the actual state of authority when they are faced with a situation which would cause a reasonable person to question the consenting party's power or control over the premises or property to be inspected, people v. Ponto, resident of a home lacked apparent authority to consent to search of the bedroom he did not occupy. Based on the facts known to them at the time and the reasonable inferences to be drawn therefrom, the detective's belief that Mr. Jeter had apparent authority was not reasonable. The warrantless entry into the first-floor apartment therefore violated Mr. Quences's rights under the New York and federal constitutions. 3. Finally, we agree with Mr. Quences's contention that the case must be remitted to Supreme Court to determine whether any evidence obtained as a result of the illegal search is sufficiently attenuated from the illegal arrest. Mr. Quences's remaining contentions do not compel a different result on this appeal. Accordingly, 
the order of the appellate division should be reversed, and case remitted to Supreme Court for further proceedings in accordance with this opinion. Order reversed and case remitted to Supreme Court, Kings County, for further proceedings in accordance with the opinion herein. Opinion by Chief Judge Wilson. Judges Rivera, Troutman and Halligan concur. Judge Canataro dissents in an opinion, in which Judges Garcia and Singas concur. Decided November 21, 2023. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law.